For Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I wanted to know, does nutrition make a difference in breast cancer prevention, treatment, and recovery? If so, what are the nutrition changes that make the most difference? There are so many myths and misconceptions about nutrition for breast cancer out there. Is it true that sugar feeds cancer? Do you have to go completely vegan after a breast cancer diagnosis? What about soy? So I brought in a breast cancer nutrition expert to talk through all of these questions and more. Tamara Rothenberg is a registered dietitian who specializes in recovery after breast cancer in her private practice in Los Angeles. She co-led the clinical study, Coping with Cancer in the Kitchen, published in the journal Nutrients. She's also the author of a new book, Cancer Diet for the Newly Diagnosed, which focuses not only on breast cancer, but all cancers. And she's a breast cancer thriver herself. Let's dive into the episode. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome, Tamar. I am so glad you are here to talk with me today. Tell the audience a little about who you are and what you do. Hi, Melissa. Thanks so much for inviting me. I just love yapping about nutrition and breast cancer and busting myths. So this is great. I appreciate the platform and it's just great. So I am a registered dietitian. I specialize in nutrition for breast cancer thrivers. That means anyone who is either at very high risk or has been through a diagnosis for breast cancer, and I have a private practice in Los Angeles. I also have a special certification in vegetarian nutrition. That doesn't mean I make everybody vegetarian. It just means I have a high-level knowledge about the nutrients that are needed. And then I also, a couple of things, I co-facilitated a study for cancer survivors, along with American Institute for Cancer Research and Cancer Support Community. And that was an amazing opportunity. And I have a new book out. So I definitely want to hear all about the new book, Cancer Diet for the Newly Diagnosed. Yes, exactly. And it's really the subtitle is kind of an integrative guide and cookbook for treatment and recovery. So I go over a lot of the, you know, the common side effects that happen and how nutrition can help with them. 
Yeah. And is the book specifically for breast cancer or does it have a broader application for other cancers as well? Yeah, great question. It's really for all cancers and the most common symptoms, but I do have another book coming out that will be specific on that. Great, great. And for those people who don't know, you know, the whole process of a cancer diagnosis and treatment, you know, there are some side effects that can come with the medications. So I'm sure you you work a lot on mitigating some of those side effects that you know, unfortunately come with the heavy duty medications and treatments required. Yes. And, you know, there's a lot of new ones on the market, the immunotherapy, and that's a whole new set of effects that are very different from chemo. But, you know, people go through them and they live long lives when they survive cancer. So it's not like you won't be able to get through it, especially for breast cancer. It's a very good recovery rate. Again, we do have stage four, which is metastatic cancer, which I hope there's a lot more research around, but there is more and more coming out. So I'm hopeful about the future and even a vaccine for breast cancer is in the works. So these are all kind of exciting developments that I like to focus on. Yeah, I actually, I don't know if you know my background. I used to uh, be a copywriter for pharmaceutical advertising. And the only way I was able to live with myself in that career was because I was working in oncology. So ipilimumab was one of the newer, you know, immune therapies for cancer. It wasn't, we weren't studying it in breast at that time. I was working on melanoma, but it did get approved for lung cancer. I keep seeing the commercials now. I'm like, that's my, that's my drug. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you got started working in the breast cancer niche? You know, some things just, they roll out the map for you. So I had breast cancer myself, but I never thought, I wasn't a dietitian at the time and I I was in high tech and uh, doing well. And then, you know, got hit with this diagnosis out of nowhere because nobody in my family had it. So uh, it's always a shock and, and sometimes it drives you to do things you wouldn't have thought of. So I ended up, I met with two dietitians when I was in treatment and I just, I never thought of nutrition as a recovery mode. And I was just so impressed about how much it can help. So one of the dietitians, the oncology dietitians encouraged me to continue and I went back to school and did that. and then. I realized, you know, there's this huge vacuum when you finish treatment, when you finish the active treatment, like whether it's chemo or radiation, where they go, okay, you're done, see you. And you're like, no, I feel like crap. I'm not done. (laughs) But there's no bridge. You know, it's just like, goodbye, see you in three months, six months. So I realized there was this huge vacuum and I wanted to fill that with nutrition programs, survivorship programs. So that was something I did have a lot of interest in and went forward and did that. Oh, good. I didn't realize you shared the commonality with me of being a second career RD. I feel like I finally found the right path, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I definitely feel that. Yeah, it fits right for me too. It's just, I don't know. It takes a certain personality, someone who's a little type A, I think. (laughs) And, you know, attention to detail. And also a generous personality. I'm not saying I have that, but I know most dietitians do. 
And I think that's very important in this field, especially oncology, where it's a very authentic relationship. Yes, I like to consider myself a recovered perfectionist, but then these little like habits and, and you know, tendencies start to creep in and I'm like, am I as recovered as I think I am? <laughs> but we yeah, do. It's, yeah. it's not only the attention to detail, but the seeing the big picture and, you know, all of that. So yeah, I think when you're dealing with human nature, you tend to realize there's no perfectionism. It's just let it go. Yeah. So I know you've been working in, in breast cancer nutrition for a while now. So you've probably seen it all out there. I've seen all sorts of recommendations that may or may not be true. So I wanted to start sort of chronologically. So let's say someone has been just diagnosed with breast cancer. What are some of the myths around a cancer diet for while someone has just been diagnosed. Okay, so how much time do we have? <laughs> oh yeah, we can we can go. <laughs> so, you know, one of the first things I see is, you know, there's a lot of stuff thrown at them and when you're going through treatment, this is the most common thing. So the doctor may say eat anything because really it's not the time to cut calories because there's going to be a time when your appetite is affected and you're not doing very well and your blood counts may be low and you don't want to delay treatment. And if you're cutting calories and other things that may lead to nutrient deficiencies. So one of the things I think thrivers don't like to hear is eat anything. And, and they're like, but I have cancer. I'm not going to eat everything. But you know, like another oncology dietitian says, there's a season for everything. And this is the season for you to really eat what you can. And that is your healing mode. And then when you go into survivorship, yes, we can fine tune that a little. So I think that's, that can be disturbing for drivers to hear, but it's okay. Your body can handle it is my thing. Like your body is really doing its best right now and you can handle it. So that's one thing that happens right at diagnosis. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, they hear things about fasting or keto or what's the one I hear all the time, sugar feeds cancer. But you really have to think about, you know, the goal with someone who's been diagnosed with cancer and especially in their early stages before those side effects have started to kick in. Like you want to enter into that treatment feeling strong and energized and ready. Because, you know, I mean, you would know better about that than I, I would, but. It's true. Yeah. And, you know, you're very motivated, which is a great thing because a lot of clients aren't that motivated when they have a chronic disease, but drivers are especially motivated. But on the other hand, that means they're open to hearing all kinds of different things that have not been proven yet, or there's been very short-term studies on like even fasting, yes, there are benefits. Is it right for you? It's very individual. How are you going to handle the side effects? You know, if you're losing weight unintentionally, you know, you have to be so careful and clear it with your medical team and do it right. So it's not like one size fits all at all. And, you know, you tend to think when you read these things on social media or whatever, like, yeah, I can just pick it up and do it, but it may not be the right thing for you. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of confusion sometimes, you know, when people are talking to a more integrative dietitian, that it's one thing or the other, you know, that it's 
all natural treatment or, you know, just the conventional way, but there's, there's a time and a place for both. You know, I've gotten messages like, you know, my doctor wants me on XYZ medications for my breast cancer. I want to do this diet. What should I do? It's like, please take your medications, you know, please go through, like they know what they're talking about. Right. I hear that so much because then this is a, a course, especially on social media. When you hear somebody anecdotes, right? Anecdotes are very persuasive, but their anecdotes are just stories, right? And a person will say, I cured myself, but they didn't tell you they had chemo and surgery before. They'll just say, I did this diet and it really worked for me. And it's very misleading because they're not, you know, being truthful about it. And no one knows if it was a diet. You know, we have no way of proving that with that one person. So you have to be very careful. You know, diet is not a cure. It's an adjunct. It certainly can help you become stronger. Integrative medicine, I absolutely encourage. There's so many, there's so much good clinical evidence for that as well. Even things like acupuncture now we know works for bone pain that many thrivers have. And it's in the clinical guidelines. It's not like this off thing anymore. So we can definitely, we should integrate both and, and see what works. Yeah, I'm, I'm in New Hampshire and even our little cancer centers integrate. I think they have three specific essential oil formulas that they'll recommend for nausea and fatigue and things, you know, things like that. So it is good to see it coming around into mainstream medicine a bit more. Yeah, I even heard this amazing technique where this uh, breast cancer surgery center uses bars, turmeric patch. And I thought, well, that's brilliant. Why not? You know, there's nothing harmful about it. Being, you know, not an open wound. And if it helps, that's fantastic. So I, I love hearing this. Yeah. So what are some of the truths about eating for breast cancer while you're going through it? Are there specific goals while you're going through treatment? In breast cancer treatment, the primary goal is not to delay treatment, right? So to keep your blood counts up to what you can and to mitigate side effects with both medication. And there are ways to do that uh, when you're not suffering too much. And we actually have really good new medication. The old image of a uh, chemotherapy throwing up and all these things, we, we now prevent most of that. Can't really prevent you from being fatigued. But we know, for example, that a walk will help with that and build up, you know, red blood cells. So there's lots more that we know now that don't have to have that image of, you know, the cancer patient in your head from years ago. And so especially oncology dietitians are really skilled in that. You know, when you talk to the person, what's, we want to work on heading off these symptoms, not just waiting to So I know a lot of people who've been through a cancer diagnosis and treatment have a pretty huge goal not to go through it again. Are there any ways that diet can help lower the risk of recurrence? Well, we have much less research on that, unfortunately. A lot of the research is on preventative causes and things you can do, but recurrence, there's less. So, you know, what we say is you can reduce your risk. You can't prevent it necessarily. We know by the, the onco score or the type of cancer, whether it's likely to occur or not. But, you know, the strongest evidence we have is really, I hate to say it, from physical activity more than nutrition. 
that that really lowers your risk tremendously. We do see that. Nutrition also helps. So a more plant-based diet, but it doesn't mean you have to necessarily be vegetarian, vegan, just, you know, adding in more plants. And there are certain, you know, additional risks with certain types of foods. But in general, we, it's more about just taking good care of yourself, getting your screenings and, you know, staying on top of it. Yeah. Why, why are those plants so important? Great question. So the evidence we have now for breast cancer is fiber plays a huge role. And whether it's, you know, reducing estrogen for the hormonal positive cancers or just better for your body, right? Getting rid of excess cholesterol and hormones. And fiber is only found in plant foods, right? (laughs) So that's where you want to stock up. And it's not like, oh, you need to eat certain plant foods. All plant foods are good. Some have, you know, if you're having a variety, you're getting what you need. You don't have to worry about. I know broccoli is a big thing and it is good, but you don't just have to eat broccoli. (laughs) Every plant has its own protective factor that when you eat, it gets incorporated. So I just say, add a plant wherever you can, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I I just came back from abroad and I realized that probably the U.S. is the only country that doesn't have plant foods for breakfast. I mean, Europe, you look at Spain, Italy, they're all having plant foods for breakfast. What's the cereal industry took off here and that's it. That's what it's about, which is fine. You can have cereal. I'm not saying don't have it, but you know, it, it was a really stark contrast to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I think, you know, I, I personally eat broccoli, like it's my job, but I like broccoli, yeah. but I think people forgot that all of the cruciferous vegetables have that same estrogen, the same positive impact on estrogen. So I try to challenge myself with breakfast. I'll do like cauliflower rice scrambled into eggs. I'll do my little broccoli sprouts with some cabbage kraut on it. And, you know, I'm trying to add up, you know, if I throw some kale in there, then I've already hit four different cruciferous veggies. So, so important. Do you have other favorite ways to foods to add to increase fiber that, that you really like helping your clients incorporate? Well, I think an easy thing is seeds like chia or flaxseed. You can add it to anything, baked goods. It doesn't really change the flavor. You can make flax eggs. You can put it on a salad. I mean, I just say, you know, don't just have lettuce. Put, if you want that crunch, put in nuts, sunflower seeds, pomegranate seeds, whatever you can. And it's a fun way to incorporate fiber as well. So it doesn't have to be two cups of vegetables, it could be other variations of that. Because I find it's really hard for people to think of like two cups of vegetables, you know? Yeah, I I love legumes too, as you know, they're such a great slow carb choice, you know, swap out, swap out that rice for some chickpeas instead or some lentils sometimes. So good for blood sugar and the fiber, soluble and insoluble. So all the good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I you're absolutely correct. And I think beans get a bad rap as a poverty food, and it's one of the healthiest foods on the planet. And I like to tell people it's the only food that actually gives back to the soil, right? It gives back nitrogen, which soil needs. Every other type of plant takes away nitrogen. So even if you know you think, oh, I don't really want beans, just think what you're doing for the environment. <laughs> you're helping it too. 
So uh, it's another way to look at it. Yeah, I've been learning a lot about that now that I have a yard. We planted some clover because clover is nitrogen fixing as well. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, so much better than a lawn. I mean, it's, yeah. it stays green. <laughs> well, we don't have lawns in LA anymore. <laughs> They're prohibited. What about the prevention arena? You had mentioned that, that there is more research when it comes to foods that, you know, help lower the risk for, for cancer. Are there myths that you hear about breast cancer prevention foods? Well, you know, we don't actually think about prevention because there is no prevention. There's a small percentage that, you know, with high risk factors of genetics, hereditary breast cancer, and that's about eight to 10%. And the rest, guess what? We don't know. We don't know. I think now we have to look more towards environmental causes because breast cancer is now the most globally diagnosed disease in the world. There's over 2 million new cases every year. This is not something we're eating, okay? (laughs) This is something that's going on in the environment. So that needs to be explored. But uh, apart from that, there are, and back to your question, when I get off on an environmental tangent, I just lose it. Yeah. (laughs) There is, you know, risk-reducing surgery. If you are at high risk for hereditary cancer, what we call pre-vivors, where your risk goes down to less than 1% if you have surgery. And that's a different kind of prevention. And even mammograms are not preventative. They detect cancers very early so that possibly they can be cured. So we don't really use the word prevention. We use risk reduction or reducing your risk. So there are a lot of myths around prevention. And again, like I said, pointing to people who say, I did this diet and it worked for me. And, you know, just it's just bogus. You can't listen to those kinds of things. There is nothing that, except for, of course, tobacco and alcohol, I would say, that definitively will lead to cancer. There are certain patterns of eating that are better. And I'd, like you said, you want to go into diagnosis feeling very strong. And that definitely helps you to get through treatment and heal your gut. 
and come out feeling stronger. So, but some of the myths I hear around prevention are really jarring because there's no evidence at all, like juicing. People think they're doing something really helpful, that they're juicing, but juicing is the opposite of doing something helpful, right? Because you're taking all the fiber out. If you're not putting the whole food in there, even with the peel, sometimes you can eat the peel, like lemon peel has more nutrients than the actual lemon, right? So juicing became this favorite thing. And you know what? We only use juicing if a if you're in treatment and you really can't eat. Is that how you want to eat? You know, is that something you think that's helpful for you? I don't know how juicing became so popular and people, you know, it's the wrong idea. It's the exact opposite of what we want to do. If you want to have a smoothie with all the nutrients, that's fine too. But I find people are overloading it with fruit that they couldn't eat, you know, in a single serve. That is not that great for you either. So yeah, you live in the land of acai bowls, which are one of the <laughs> biggest blood sugar spikers out there. It's like oh, right? six servings yeah. of fruit. Yeah. I think, you know, it sort of speaks to the point we're so like back to in the US, you know, thinking about individualism and personal responsibility. And it sort of, you know, increases this myth that if we do everything right, we can prevent ourselves from having cancer. But that's just not the case. I mean, we all know those women who run ultra marathons and eat all the fruits and vegetables and they have no genetic risk factors and they still get cancer. Absolutely. My clients are across the whole spectrum. They're vegans, they're vegetarians, they eat regular Western diets. You know, there's no one thing. You know, I will say that I think if you're physically fit and you're eating well, yes, and well-nourished, you will go into diagnosis better, but it doesn't mean you will prevent that cancer. And so much of it is the interaction between the environment and genetics. And does nutrition play a role? Probably, but it's not 100%. So we, we just have to do what we can within our control and not go to extremes also, because you're not going to be happy, a happy eater. Yeah. One myth that I want to put to bed once and for all is that soy causes cancer or increases the risk for breast cancer. Right. I talk about this a lot and I'm telling you, you will not put it to bed <laughs> because there are, I find this amazing. There are still oncologists and I'm not knocking oncologists, but they are still recommending to their clients not to eat soy. And they're just not up on the research. This was 20, we have 25 years of really solid research that it's safe. Now, only that it's safe. We have what's called now in the research, I think it's called windows of susceptibility. Yeah. If you're an adolescent, you know, you think about it, your breasts are the only things that grow after you're born. So of course, they're more susceptible to cell changes and DNA changes. So if we can capture that window and eat more soy as an adolescent, guess what? We have less breast cancer. Now that's an amazing connection. So how can you say that soy causes it when it's the one thing we know that really has an impact uh, during those times? So I'm sorry, but that busts that whole myth of soy and also the, the whole thing about men growing breasts. You know, it's very difficult to say that now with all genders that, you know, when I hear that, it really gets me going. There was, it was so stupid. It was based on this one study where this man ate liters and liters and liters of soy milk. 
And he he didn't get breast cancer. He didn't grow breasts, but the he had these, you know, I think it's, I forgot the word for it, where you have these fatty deposits in your breast. And that was it. It was not cancerous. So that whole thing is based on that one single man, that poor man that was going crazy with soy milk. And yes, we had very poor studies years ago done in mice. And it shows you not everything in mice will translate to humans that showed breast cancer changes. But guess what? It didn't translate to humans. And, you know, again, we see in Asian culture, they eat 10 times more soy than we do. They have, okay, so hereditary factors are less, but they have the lowest rates of breast cancer. And guess what? When they come here, when they immigrate here, their rates start to match Western-born women. So another clue that soy is protective and, you know, just the right kind of soy is, is what you want to focus on. And I do my best. <laughs> yeah, I always talk about, you know, the quality of soy matters. You know, we're talking about countries like Japan, where they're eating a lot of fermented soy, like tempeh and natto, whereas here, most Americans, like the most common form of soy that they're eating is in processed, you know, meat analog products like the veggie burgers and whatnot. It's soy protein isolate, which is not the whole food of soy. Right. And not only that, the, the soy that's used as sort of an emulsifier in foods, it's processed so much that there's no phytoestrogens in it. So you're not getting the benefit. If you're worried about soy, you're not getting the phytoestrogens. If you're not worried about soy, that's not the way to get your soy, you know. Yeah. And, you, you know, you brought up uh, phytoestrogens. And I think, you know, that's that's where the confusion lies, even with doctors. I think, you know, that myth that soy contains estrogens, it does not. No, phyto means plant. So it's a plant estrogen. It's not a hormone. It doesn't act like a hormone in your body. It doesn't mimic. In fact, it prevents estrogen from binding to the receptor that actually can grow tumors. So it works alongside. I'm not saying to do it instead of tamoxifen, which is an estrogen you know, reduction blocker, but it works alongside tamoxifen. So it's actually recommended if you're having tamoxifen to include soy in your diet. So Again, you know, I think it's just easy to scare. It's easier to scare people and say, don't eat soy than actually look, read the research. I know I work with so many different hormone conditions and I love soy for everyone. You know, if you have high estrogens, the phytoestrogens can help bind to those receptors, which may actually lead to a reduction in symptoms of high estrogens. If you have low estrogens, it can bind to those same receptors and maybe cause a little bit of relief from symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats. So I'm a huge soy fan, but always encourage the whole soy, like edamame, tofu, tempeh, Soy milk, depending on the, you know, it's relatively minimally processed compared to some of those soy powders and soy supplements and soy that is in all of those shelf stable foods that contain it as a byproduct. Right. So, and then we can get into GMO soy, which I don't know your feelings on that, but there's no evidence to suggest it's uh, going to be harmful either at what we know right now. I can't tell you 50 years from now. 
but we, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm not anti-GMO necessarily. I'm anti the fact that most GMOs were bred to increase the amount of glyphosate that can get added yeah. to them, with leading to, yeah. yeah, so it's sort of like, oh, in, in theory, but yeah, that's that's where I stand on it. So I imagine that lifestyle plays a role too. You already kind of alluded to physical activity. What are some other lifestyle changes that can help lower risks for breast cancer and support recovery? So great question. You know, number one is alcohol. Again, ask your doctor what they think is moderation for you. It can be different, but, you know, alcohol has several problems. One, of course, it's a toxin and your body tries to get rid of it. But for younger women with dense breasts, mammograms are harder to see tumors with dense breasts and alcohol actually causes more density in your breasts. And I think a lot of people don't know that. So it's very important that you consider that when you're thinking about your alcohol intake. It is a very high breast cancer risk. It's one of the things that we have a lot of good evidence around. So, you know, keep it under control in moderation, enjoy it in small amounts. I think that's a big thing. Yeah, I think not a lot of people realize that the recommendation for women is one serving a day. And that's, that's a maximum, you know, and I often get asked, well, what if I, you know, don't drink every day, but then on the weekend, I have four or five. It's like, you can't save them up. Um, You're going to overload your liver trying to get rid of it. That's right. That's good advice. Yeah. And, and what's a glass? It's not 12 ounces, you know, it's, it's more like five ounces. And even though they put it, the alcohol in these huge glasses, So you have to consider that, you know, what's a serving? Uh, One bottle of beer is a serving. Uh, One ounce is a, you know, hardcore liquor serving. And then four four to five ounces of wine. Yeah, we, we had a breast cancer surgeon on earlier this month as well. And her biggest recommendation was no smoking. Oh, well, I mean, I just... I'm sorry, I don't even bring it up because it's just like, come on. <laughs> we know so much about it. We know it's, there's just no question. Quit if you're smoking, don't take it up. Watch out for secondhand smoke. I was just traveling and other countries are not, you know, it's refreshing to come back to the States where it's not allowed in front of buildings because just walking around Europe, <laughs> you can't avoid that secondhand smoke. So it's not a good idea. Yeah, I actually went to a dietitian conference in 2019 in Arizona that was weird choice of a venue. It was held at a casino. And just walking from my room to the conference, I would just, you know, be seeped in smoke. It was a weird choice for a dietitian conference, I will say. Do you talk about supplements with your patients at all? Are there you know, ones out there that they're hearing about and they're curious and asking you questions about? Yeah, it's a big subject. So I really get educated on it. You can't avoid it. There are some that are helpful. There are some that aren't. There are brands that are better. You know, you have to be so careful because as you know, it's not regulated. But the other thing I find, you know, my clients come with bagfuls And I really go through one by one and we go over, is this helpful or not? Is this something you should be taking along with your labs? But the thing to know is during treatment, so many of these supplements can interact and actually dilute the effects. 
of chemotherapy. It's a known thing. And even if you took it before chemo, it can interact. So as soon as you're diagnosed, you know, talk to your don't, I mean, make sure you share everything you're taking with your doctor and dietitian. It's not innocuous, even if it's vitamin D, okay? Even B12 can in, interact with chemo. So we have to be really careful that you definitely need that supplement and the form is right that you're taking the dose. We have to view it like a medicine. And if it's going to interact, you know, it's a known thing that they do interact, especially with the immunotherapies as well. So we have to be careful. Yeah, the actually the very first chemotherapy was an antifolate agent. There's a fantastic book. If anyone is as big of a dork as I am, it's called The Emperor of All Maladies. And it's, oh, I love it. it's yeah. the biography of cancer, but it, it's it's fascinating. I, I've actually read it twice now because I wrote my thesis on it in, oh, wow. in my degree as well. Yeah, really, really fascinating about the history of, of the, the development of cancer therapies. But yeah, it's an anti-folate. So if you're taking folate, it may actually, you know, by by you saying it interacts, one of the more common interactions is it makes the cancer medicine less effective, which right. you don't want. You know, you don't want to weaken the strength of the medications that you're taking. Right. We even see like people think they should be stocking up on antioxidants, which is a good thing once you're in survivor mode. But it'll interact with radiation. Radiation is already causing a lot of antioxidants in your body. You don't want to counteract that. So it's really hard. You really need a professional opinion before you take anything. Yeah, I remember during my internship being called in for a consult on someone who had a protein powder he wanted to keep taking through his treatment. And it it was one of those protein powders that's more than just protein. It was kind of like a meal replacement and it was just, you know, a multivitamin in a protein powder form. And so, yeah, I had to, had to call the cancer, the oncology dietitian to come and review it with him why he shouldn't take that. Yeah, it, it's hard because you want to do something that's helpful to yourself, but review everything and maybe you can take it. Yeah, it's like the one time you you want oxidation in your body, you know, you want that to kill those cells. You don't want to help the cancer cells right. survive better. What are some resources for those with breast cancer? I know you had mentioned that you're working on there's free counseling somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I work with this wonderful nonprofit, Peace Chain, and it's for all genders, all people who ever had a diagnosis, so pre-vivors through after diagnosis, and they have an array of services. So one of the new programs, nutrition coaching program that I, along with another dietitian, she provides a group option, a master plan. So it's based in LA. It's mostly for LA. But there are some out of state, and we're just opening our next cohort. So, actually, if you go to my Sherrod or my account, I have a link to apply. It's a fantastic program and very well needed. Yes, I will be linking the Sharsharit program in the show notes for anyone who is curious and would like to fill out an application for that. So, thank you. I always like to wrap up by asking what's one thing that you want people to take away from this episode about nutrition and breast cancer? Well, it sounds crazy, but I want you to trust your instincts. <laughs> if it doesn't sound right, it's not right. And really start trusting yourself for what feels right to your body. 
Yeah, that's, you know, really applies to everything, but particularly so you've got to listen to your gut and how you're feeling. And I know it's probably the time in your life when you're surrounded by more experts than you've ever been surrounded with in your life, but you still have to listen to your own gut at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell the audience where they can find you, your website, social media, et cetera. So I do have a website with a blog on some of the most asked questions, and that's tamarrothenbergrd.com. My Instagram is breast cancer nutritionist. And then I do have a new Facebook group for fad-free nutrition for thrivers, and it's called A Fresh Start for Breast Cancer Thrivers. And it's a great group. I I don't allow myths to develop there, (laughs) so you can find accurate info. Oh, that's great. I remember, I think I started following you back when you were a nutrition nom nom still. Oh, wow. I saw that that on your page floating around at some point. And I was like, oh yeah, that was before. I remember that. So I love that this is your your focus. So you can really, you know, focus on the emerging research in this area and share your expertise. It is very much needed. So thank you for always sharing science-based tips in a realistic way. I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us today. So much. I'm so happy to be part of this. The yap on about nutrition. Thanks everyone for listening. See you next week. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.